Edward Theodore Gein was born on August 27, 1906, in La Crosse, Wisconsin, to Augusta and George Gein. When Ed was nine years old, the family, including Ed's older brother Henry, moved from the larger city of La Crosse to the small farming town of Plainfield, Wisconsin. Although the family appeared on the surface to be a normal American family, inside the home, things were strained. George was an alcoholic who was largely uninvolved in the lives of his sons. He did not work, so his sons had to work odd jobs to provide for the family. Augusta was a strong-willed and opinionated woman, who often preached to her sons about the dangers of women and the vulgarity of sex. She isolated her sons, especially Ed, who rarely left the house except for school or to work, which often consisted of babysitting the neighborhood children. Even as he became an adult, Ed never left the family home to live on his own, and in fact, he never even dated. His mother, although fanatical and domineering, was really his only friend. In 1940, when Ed was 34 years old, his father died of heart problems related to his years of excessive drinking. Ed continued to live in the family home with his mother and brother Henry. Henry tried to encourage Ed's independence and spoke critically of their mother. In 1944, while Ed and Henry were burning brush on their land, the fire became out of control. Ed, who claimed to have lost sight of his brother, called the police to report him missing. However, when they arrived, he took them directly to Henry's lifeless body. Although there were reportedly no signs Henry died from the fire itself, and there was evidence he had been hit on the head, no autopsy was performed, and his death was ruled an accident. Shortly after Henry's death, Augusta experienced a stroke, which left her utterly dependent upon Ed. Ed cared for his mother for only a short time, as Augusta died from a second stroke in 1945. After his mother's death, Ed was completely alone in the family house. He was said to miss his mother terribly, and to preserve her memory, he boarded up her room as well as other areas of the house she frequently used. While these areas of the home remained spotless and pristine, the remainder of the house was marked by squalor. Ed stopped working after his mother's death. Some accounts indicated he began spending his time reading about Nazi atrocities and human dissection. Obsessed with death and longing for his mother, Ed began raiding local cemeteries at night. He dug up as many as 40 graves, sometimes simply to observe the corpse inside, other times to take body parts as mementos, and occasionally to steal entire bodies, which he would then take back to his house. Ed was fascinated with the bodies of middle-aged women who resembled his beloved mother. He would dissect these bodies, use the bones to make bowls and cups, and use the skin for decorations such as chair covers and lampshades. Eventually, he began to craft a woman's suit out of human skin and organs, which included a mammary vest, skin leggings, and a skin mask. He was said to have worn the suit around his home and imagined himself as his mother. Ed continued his nighttime cemetery visits, but in 1954, his pursuits became deadly. Mary Hogan was a 51-year-old woman who went missing from her tavern, a pool of blood found on the floor. Although Ed was a suspect in the case, as he had been seen at the tavern, he was not investigated and the case turned cold. It was not until three years later, in 1957, when Ed again came to the attention of the authorities after 58-year-old Bernice Warden went missing from the hardware store she owned. Her son, Deputy Sheriff Frank Warden, remembered seeing Ed in the store the evening prior to his mother's disappearance. 
He recalled Ed saying he would be back the following day to purchase antifreeze. When they examined the store after Bernice's disappearance, they found a receipt for antifreeze, which was the last one she had written before vanishing. Police immediately went to the Gein farm. When they searched the barn, they found Bernice's body, headless, gutted, and hanging upside down from the rafters. In the home, they found the atrocities of Ed's nighttime pursuits, including the shrunken head of Mary Hogan. Ed immediately confessed to robbing graves and murdering both Mary and Bernice. However, he said he was in a trance when he did these things and would often wake up in the middle of these acts. He told police he liked to wear the woman's suit he had constructed out of human skin and pretend he was his mother. During the investigation, Ed was also questioned about other women from the town who had gone missing, but he denied having anything to do with their disappearances. After his arrest, Ed was charged with the murder of Bernice Warden, but due to financial constraints, the state did not charge him in Mary Hogan's death. Concerns about Ed's mental health were raised, and he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. He was initially deemed incompetent to stand trial and was committed to a psychiatric hospital for treatment. In 1968, it was determined he was competent to proceed with his legal case. Ed was determined to have committed Bernice Warden's murder, but he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He was committed to the Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. He remained hospitalized until he died of lung cancer in 1984. He was said to have been a model patient. Ed Gein's macabre story was truly stranger than fiction. It was the inspiration of many horror characters, including Norman Bates in Psycho, Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. This episode is about Ed Gein. Welcome to Season 2 of Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark sides of the human condition. So David, we're back. We are back. Yeah, and we wanted to really start things off with a bang, so we decided to get Season 2 rolling with one of the darkest, strangest, and most disturbing killers we could think of. David, there's so much to say about Ed Gein, I, I don't even know where to start. Yeah, I agree. Fascinating story, for sure. Yeah, I, you know, there's just, there's so many things that I feel like I could say about this case, but I really had to limit myself and choose, you know, just one or two areas. So what I thought I would start talking about is, you know, serial killers, because who doesn't like to talk about serial killers? I mean, I feel like there's so many books, TV shows, 
movies about serial killers. And it's a topic that fascinates us as a society because it's just so hard to understand, at at least in my opinion. You know, it's like something I can't ever imagine doing. Um, But at the same time, it's like, I I just want to understand how people could think that way. Yeah, I think it's, serial killers are fascinating. There's no question about that, as evidenced by everything we see in pop culture, including movies and, you know, books and stuff like that. But what's also interesting is that while serial killers may have a certain degree of psychopathy present, not all psychopaths are serial killers. No, not by a long shot. So it's quite a big difference there, even though we've talked about psychopaths in the past, that talking about serial killers is its own unique sort of area. Yeah, because, and believe it or not, not all serial killers are psychopaths. Okay, so now you've got me interested. Yeah, so I mean, I think that probably most of them are, but as we talk about Ed Gein, I think that we're going to be talking about one serial killer who may not have been a psychopath. So, you know, I I refer to him as a serial killer, but there's actually some debate about whether or not this label fits for Ed Gein. Mm -hmm. There have been different definitions of the term serial killing over the years, with some people saying as few as two murders qualifies, with others saying it requires many more than that. So the federal government attempted to provide a specific definition of serial murder in the Protection of Children from Sexual Predator Act of 1998. And if you're interested in reading this law, we'll put a link to it on our website. But it defines serial killings as a series of three or more killings having common characteristics, such as to suggest the reasonable possibility that the crimes were committed by the same actor or actors. So according to this law, it requires three murders in order to count as a serial killer. And if you recall from the narrative, Ed Gein only is known to have killed two people although he was suspected in other cases. Right, known to have killed two people. Right. But the FBI, who obviously has a lot of experience in investigating and prosecuting serial killers, felt that this definition was not sufficient. So in 2005, the FBI hosted a multidisciplinary symposium to determine an accurate definition, look for common causes and motivations, and speak about typologies of serial killers. The definition that was developed during this symposium was the unlawful killing of two or more victims by the same offender or offenders in separate events. So do you have any any understanding of why they changed that? Well, I, I don't know exactly the thought process behind it, but my guess is that, you know, with our modern investigative techniques, I mean, we just have so many more tools um, as law enforcement now than we used to that we're catching people earlier. And so it may be, you know, somebody has murdered two people and then they get caught. But if not for that, they would have committed more murders and been a serial killer. That makes sense. You know, so if we go with the FBI's definition, Ed Gein most certainly meets the criteria as he admitted to killing both Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden. Now, one of the areas the symposium attendees commented about were serial killer typologies. Um, There's been a few attempts to classify serial killers by type, and these types were typically determined according to the motivation of the killer. So probably the most widely known serial killer typology was developed by Holmes and DeBerger in 1988, and then further expanded upon by Holmes and Holmes in 1996. 
In their work, they identified four different typologies of serial killers, which were largely based on motivations, as I said before. This typology included the mission-oriented killer, and these are killers who are trying to eliminate a particular group of people they believe to be bad or unworthy. The second typology was the hedonistic killer, and these individuals are motivated by things like financial gain, thrill, or lust. The third type was the power control killer, and these people are motivated by feelings of complete power they have over their victims. And then the fourth type was the visionary killer, and these killers are driven by psychosis. Visionary killers experience hallucinations and or delusions that compel them to kill. They're the only typology who is considered to have a major mental illness. So as you said earlier, David, about uh, psychopaths, so you'd be more likely to find psychopath serial killers in the first three typologies that I mentioned. Okay. So if we look at this uh, typology for serial killers, Ed Gein has typically been identified as an example of the visionary killer. You know, it's been theorized he killed women who resembled his mother so he could construct this suit, which he could then wear and quote unquote be his mother. Wow. Yeah, wild, right? Mm. So the theory then would be that he had a delusion that he could come, he could in some way bring his mother back to life by doing this. Okay. So the FBI symposium attendees did not outright speak against using typologies, but they cautioned that the use of them may be too complex and cumbersome for law enforcement who are investigating these crimes. And when they're trying to find a serial killer, they don't want law enforcement to get distracted by trying to figure out what type of serial killer they're looking for, which, you know, kind of makes sense. Yeah, it does. That makes a lot of sense. Rather, FBI suggested uh, police consider the motivation of the killings, as this is already kind of standard police procedure. But they cautioned them not to focus solely on motive, as it's not always helpful in identifying the killer. You still have to look at, you know, clues and patterns and evidence left behind. Right. It's more the modus operandi that's important in linking together different crimes. Correct? Yeah, that's very, it's a very important piece. Right. As opposed to the motivation, which comes later. We can figure out a motive later. What we have to do is stop this guy. Right. You have to look at the evidence and use that to stop the person. So the FBI symposium attendees indicated while there are common motivations for serial killing, their list was not exhaustive. And I'm going to go through some of the motive, motivations that they identified. But one of the things that they also emphasized was that regardless of the motive, serial killers commit their crimes because they want to. However, they included the caveat that for offenders with a severe mental illness, that may not actually be the case. And in the case of Ed Gein, the courts found that he was severely mentally ill and therefore not responsible for his crimes. I think that's a knee-jerk reaction that anybody would have considering the whole nature of the his crimes is that this guy is insane. I mean, it's really like his stuff was so grotesque. I mean, just so different than what they had seen before that, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to imagine there not being something significantly wrong with his mental health, right? Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the motivations that were outlined at the FBI symposium. So the motivations were anger, which I think is pretty self-explanatory. 
Criminal enterprise. Um, so examples of this would be serial murders related to organized crime or gangs. And sometimes we forget that like gang violence potentially or organized crime violence could fall under that category of serial killing, right? Sure. So another motivation was financial gain. So this makes me think of the Black Widow killers who kill for insurance money. Ideology. Uh, this can include murders committed in the service of terrorism or some other ideologic belief. Power or thrill. These are the individuals who feel excitement. Sexually based. These would be serial killers driven by sexual desire. And then finally, psychosis, where the killing is related to severe hallucinations and or delusions. And so really, it kind of feels like they just expanded upon the typologies that were originally developed mm. and kind of included some other areas. So again, when we're considering Ed Gein's crimes, the motivation that probably best fits would be that of psychosis. You know, I've read some accounts that Gein had sex with some of the bodies, um, but other accounts dispute this. And he himself denied engaging in that behavior. So I don't think the sexually based motivation applied in his case. Okay. And, you know, what's kind of interesting to me in, in researching this, there wasn't a lot of information available out there about Gein's actual mental health symptoms. So we know that he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. There was also information saying he was diagnosed as being a sexual psychopath, which, you know, that's not a term that exists anymore. I feel like they were looking at his crimes as being somewhat sexual in nature because there was a focus on like female anatomy, female sexual organs. But it's just, it's just kind of interesting, you know, when we think about like schizophrenia, there are so many behavioral um, indications of that disorder because it's a very severe mental health disorder. If somebody's not being treated for it, they're going to show impairment in several areas of their lives. And what we do know about Ed Gein is that prior to the time that he committed the murders and he was, you know, going to the graves, he his hygiene had gotten much worse. People were complaining about how dirty he was, how he smelled so bad. His house was obviously just completely filthy. You know, he never married. He never really had significant relationships. And you can find all of those types of symptoms um, or, or problems in people who have schizophrenia. So just, just I want to cut in real quick. Absolutely. And I know that we've said this before and we've pointed this out before. And so I think it's there is this idea that somebody who is schizophrenic can become violent. And I think that is true. I think that on occasion you do see that when somebody's having a full psychotic break. I mean, you and I have seen that at the prison. It can happen, but really, I mean, people with mental illness are far more likely to be victims of violent crime than they are to perpetrate violent crime. Exactly. I think that's what makes this case makes me a little skeptical about the whole idea of him being schizophrenic. Because the killings, as you mentioned before, are generally seen to be volitional, which means he is choosing to do this. Well, it, you know, and it can get a little bit tricky because if it was really spurred by a delusion and otherwise he was kind of able to maintain normal behavior, it is possible and you can see kind of that planning and execution of crimes. Right. It's just, it's so hard to say, given that there's just not a lot of information about what was going on with him. 
I found one account, but only one, where it said that he had reported hearing things, but it didn't say what he reported hearing. I don't know if those were auditory hallucinations. You know, I, I can't be sure. What he really would have needed is, uh, you know, a forensic evaluation, maybe by somebody like yourself. Well, and he did have those. So in order for him to have been found um, incompetent to stand trial and to be found insane, he had to have been evaluated by people at the state hospital. However, those records, at least as far as my research was, I could not locate them. There wasn't any information about the details of what he reported to them. Well, that, and I would venture to say that we've come a long way in our knowledge base since then, since those types of evals were being done back when this happened. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that things are are different now. We have different assessment measures, um, and we even have different diagnostic criteria. So, you know, what we, we have different labels for things. So it's really hard to say if he had schizophrenia as we think of it today well and that's just it and then because schizophrenics are so less likely to act out violently especially violence to this level it makes me skeptical that's just that's just a, a, a you know my my general opinion listening to you speak at the moment well and there's actually quite a few people out there who don't believe that he was schizophrenic at all and they think that that was a misdiagnosis um, and if you think about schizophrenia, so we talked about the hallucinations, we talked about delusions, um, but the third symptom that's often found, but not always, is disorganization. And that can be disorganization of behavior, so they're doing things that don't make sense. Um, it can be disorganization of speech, so they're saying things that don't make sense. Or it can be um, with their emotions, so their emotions don't fit whatever's going on at the time. And in Ed's, Ed Gein's case, you know, his behavior, while it was difficult to understand and, and outright appalling, it wasn't disorganized. He was able to continue robbing graves without getting caught. You know, if he was really that disorganized, he probably wouldn't have gotten away with it for so long. And he wasn't even arrested for Mary Hogan's murder until three years later when he committed another murder. Right. Um, so again, he wasn't so disorganized that he was not able to continue his behavior. And like some of the videos that you show your students, somebody who is in the midst of psychosis is usually completely disorganized. Oftentimes that's the case. The exception to that is people, you know, who have more of like a paranoid schizophrenia, they can be more organized. Um, and, and somebody with delusional disorder, you may not know that they're mentally ill unless you talk about whatever they're delusional about. So, you know, it's possible that in Ed Gein's case, he had this very delusional belief about bringing his mother back to life in some sense. And that was the basis for the diagnosis. I remember us talking about delusional disorder briefly in the past. And, and that is actually one of those really sort of interesting exceptions. It to this. really is. I mean, and it's very rare. But I mean, a person who has delusional disorder, unless you're talking about whatever their delusion is, they can seem completely normal, completely wow. organized. They don't have hallucinations. So, you know, it's, it is possible that that label of schizophrenia did fit for Gein. It's also possible that it didn't. And because we don't have a lot of information about his actual symptoms, it's very hard for us to kind of look back and determine that. Those are my thoughts on it. You know, I'm very interested in, of course, the legal aspects of it and, you know, the diagnostic aspect of it. But I feel like 
you know, the way that I kind of break things down is always like so, um, I don't know, methodical. And I don't know. I'm, I'm just very curious, David, because I think there are so many other things going on with this case. And I want to hear what your interpretation of it is. Oh, I definitely think there's more going on here. I would be really interested in digging deeper into this and really seeing if we could come across some more in-depth records on him. Yeah. You know, in terms of what was going on during his evaluation and stuff. And then you doing a sort of after the fact forensic. A look back kind of, yeah. Yeah, sort of forensic evaluation. Obviously, you know, you can't subject Ed Gein anymore to to the types of uh, tools that you would use normally. No, of course. But you could still give your opinion on it and i would i would be fascinated by that to see where we are in terms of taking a look a contemporary look at an old case like this with more information at hand yeah i agree you know so for this episode i admit that i had to do some research um because as i mentioned before this is certainly more your wheelhouse than mine you you are fascinated with serial killers i am but i will tell you i've i've yet to evaluate one okay so i don't know yeah, will happen in my career or not. But I, I am very interested in just kind of reading about them, researching them. Um, I teach a lot about them in my class. Well, serial killers, as it's strictly defined, I think, because you have had at least one case that I can think of that, of course, we can't mention <laughs> and talk about. Right. But that where that would come close, I would think. Well, I've certainly dealt, I've certainly evaluated uh, many people who were accused of murder. Right. And some people who had murdered more than one person. There we go. But there wasn't, in those cases, it wasn't like a pattern. It wasn't, it was kind of like more reactive, I guess, in a sense, or related to gang violence, which technically could fit the definition. So, okay. so I may be eating my words. There you go. <laughs> okay. Well, what I didn't realize about Ed Gein, um, even though I was aware of who he was, was how many fictionalized characters were based on his life. You mentioned some of them, um, you know, some more loosely than others. You stated that Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which to me is a classic. Yep. Um, Norman Bates from Psycho is another classic. Another classic. And then you have yet another classic in Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, and you know what? So today is actually, you guys are hearing this after the fact, but... Today, the day that we're recording, is Valentine's Day. And Valentine's Day is the day that Silence of the Lambs was released. Wow. And this was just pure coincidence that we decided to do this case today. But I feel like it's very apropos. Wow. So you <laughs> and have, very romantic, right? Sure. <laughs> you have three very different fictionalized horif- horrific characters. Yeah. Based on one guy. Yes. So different aspects of the same guy, which is fascinating to me. Yes, me too. So all legendary. So there is something especially fascinating about Ed Gein. I think that when you add in the fact that he was like truly an original for this country, you know, with very little to compare him to before him, uh, with the exception of maybe, what would you say, maybe Jack the Ripper in England? But even he, I mean, because we never found out who he was, I mean, we don't have like the same grotesque behavior, you know, of collecting body parts and repurposing them. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that there was anything really like that before him. Maybe a Jack the Ripper episode's in the works then. Oh, maybe. Because I do distinctly remember some things about Jack the Ripper and him eating body parts. I remember something about like maybe grave robbing. I don't remember the cannibalism piece. Yeah. Okay. So as most serial killers, as 
we have come to know them, they generally don't do this kind of stuff. That's what sort of makes Ed Gein stand out as a, as a true original in this genre. His name came up a lot, I remember, when Jeffrey Dahmer was caught. Uh, there was a lot of comparisons of Jeffrey Dahmer to Ed Gein. Dahmer was another one. I mean, that was, it was just so taboo. Yeah. And I think so it was kind of on the same level, even though it was, their, their murders were different. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I remember that too. Okay. So when I went to take a look at Gein's family life and his history, I was struck by his relationship with his mother. So that's a big surprise, right, Dr. McCona? I know, right? <laughs> okay. You love to talk about mother, mother complex. Okay. Yeah. But when I say that, I, I want to make it clear. I don't mean it in the Freudian, everything is sort of mother's fault. The old Freudian sense. Right, right. Right. Um, which I think has been thoroughly challenged in contemporary psychology. But also by how much mention Gein's relationship with his mother was written about in the histories about him. And all the histories that I saw, that was something that was brought up quite a bit, was his relationship with his mother. And you brought it up. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that you can talk about this case without talking about his relationship with his mother. Okay, so in this sense, then there might actually be something to this. So in other words... His relationship with his mother, as it's commonly thought to be known, is written about a great deal. So in this case, it may very well be the case that Gein's mother might provide some insight into his disturbing behavior. So right from the beginning, there are references to Gein's mother being extremely rigid with how she handled him and his brother. It was believed that she sought to instill in them the idea that the world was a wicked place and that this extended to all women, save for herself, of course. So here we have the, the makings of a very dichotomous view of the feminine, on one hand pristine and pure, and on the other wicked and vile. This is the mother's or slut's duality, or the old version and whore example. I would argue that this dualistic view of the feminine has been a huge problem in the psychology of men probably for thousands of years. Notice that I said the psychology of men, not women. Women are human and all that that implies, full of emotional and spiritual depth, contradictions, mystery, wisdom, knowledge, compassion, so forth. It's how men have historically seen women and by extension their own feminine psychology that I think we have had so many problems historically speaking with everything from things like, well, everything, all the way to the continued destruction of the natural world. So obviously, that's a very large and complicated philosophical discussion, but it makes sense that in very concrete ways, any boy's sense of inner feminine would be highly influenced by both of his parents. So in Gein's case, we have an emotionally absent, alcoholic father who is, my guess, not able to stand up to a very domineering mother. In this sense, Gein's father provided a very unfit example of the positive masculine. Again, I won't go too far down the rabbit hole here, but suffice to say the family dynamics of being raised with an addict in the family or an addict as a parent are very interesting and can be very destructive. In this sense, I wonder if Gein's father and his inability to be present for his sons did not contribute even more directly to Gein's behavior later on in life. That's, you know, that's really interesting because it's kind of like all the accounts, they just mention Gein's father as like a one-off. Right. But you think about how important the, the influence of the father is on a boy's development. Absolutely. Yeah. So that is really interesting. So Gein's mother was obviously disgusted by her husband's inability to deal with his responsibilities in life. 
and in some kind of strong reaction formation felt she needed to assume strict control of her sons to ensure they did not grow up to be like their father. So, a funny thing happens when you try so hard to be the opposite of those we hate, however, and this is something that plays out in families where one or both parents are addicts. If we don't become conscious of the dark psychology at play, we wind up perpetuating many of the same mistakes. These mistakes may look different on the surface, but in many cases, the psychology is the same. Take, for instance, something I see a lot working with inmates. Many of them, the men that I work with, grew up without fathers to the point where it's a cliche, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you hear that over and just, I mean, time and time again, like my dad wasn't there. Right. In some way, shape or form. Right. So later in life, many of these men can't see how their decisions, which put them in prison, is the exact same kind of abandonment that their own fathers enacted on them. So, sure, it looks different on the surface because one left while the other is incarcerated, but the unconscious psychology, when we really drill down into it, is often the same. What is definitely the same is the consequences it has on the family. Kids don't generally understand the reasons surrounding the father's absence. They just know that he's gone for one reason or another. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I mean, to, to a child, it doesn't really matter. It just matters that dad's not there. Right. So we have a mother who seems to be reacting to the father's abandonment in a very strong and rigidly pathological way. She demands perfection from her sons as a way of steering them away from the sins of the father and in the process continues to perpetuate the arrest of their psychological growth started by the addict father. So this is a recipe for disaster. One of the biggest psychological issues that I have focused on in my own research, and which you are familiar with a great deal, because you hear me talk about it a lot, Jessica. Yes, yes. Right, is something that Jung called the mother complex. There is a lot to say on this, and I again, I won't try to completely explain it here, but suffice to say this is one side of something balanced by something we call the great mother archetype. The great mother archetype is everything that is good and nurturing in the divine feminine. Jung argued that this archetype was represented in the King Arthur legend by the Holy Grail. It was King Arthur's inner divine feminine that pretty much saved the kingdom. The mother complex is the other side of that. It's the terrible version of this. This is the pathological block that men sometimes suffer that keeps them from living out their full potential. In order to be the powerful beings we are, we have to begin by accepting full responsibility for ourselves. First and foremost, by understanding that the world does not owe us anything. Just because we may have been raised to believe that we are, you know, our mom's special little guy or that our parents' pride and joy, that does not entitle us to everything we want in life. But it takes a while to learn this. Usually, if all goes according to plan, sometime in our late 20s to mid-30s, we, men, go through a great humbling of sorts where we lose that childish sense of entitlement. Oftentimes, the catalyst for this is that we have our own children and we finally have to devote more of ourselves to something outside of ourselves for some men, however, this natural process of throwing off this complex becomes arrested and the man gets stuck. I feel like this was Gein's case. Throw in an emotionally absent father and a domineering mother and you get a perfect setup for this. Gein learned very early to idolize his mother as pure, a saint of sorts, while his father was evil. 
Again, this was back in the day when addiction was a moral failing rather than a psychosocial challenge in life. So he starts to identify heavily with his mother. His mother uses this influence to systematically isolate her sons and make them dependent pretty much on her alone. She does this by controlling their lives in almost every way to include, and especially, how they interact with other women. So this is the mother complex in full force. Instead of being pushed to be independent and responsible, Gein and his brother were nurtured in the opposite direction, to be dependent. I wonder if there were some abandonment issues here with the mother as well, as she sets them up to never want to leave the safety of the farm, and by extension, never abandon her the way her husband did. But in this dynamic, Gein starts to develop a very extreme view of women, but most notably his own inner feminine. It was his brother who first caught on to what was happening, and threatened by his brother's newfound independence and courage to leave this pathological script, Gein killed him. Potentially. Potentially. I know this is only speculated, but it makes sense to me that Gein, becoming deathly afraid of abandonment with the help of his mother, would rather see his brother dead than for him to really leave the script. And this explains the mysterious death of his brother. And you're not alone in that that belief or that um, thought. I think a lot of people have speculated that that is what happened. Sure. So Gein now has his mother all to himself. Her falling ill only reinforces a very pathological relationship between them where he feels completely obligated to care for her and have an even further excuse to not live any semblance of his own life, an independent life. In the meantime, his dichotomous view of femininity continues to grow, but like anything shoved into a shadow for too long, it springs forth, often in pathological ways. In this sense, he hates everything to do with women as he sees them as wicked, with the exception of his mother, who is pure, but develops a very strong fascination with them as well. He starts collecting body parts, including reproductive organs of women's dead bodies. This is a classic example of the fetishization of something that we hold as consciously shameful in our psyche. What you resist will persist. Gein's darkness, his shadow dimension, so carefully imprisoned by his mother, was now demanding its due. To me, this represents his fascination with women and their bodies. My guess is that Gein associated women's bodies with sexuality and shame a great deal, which is why he felt a compulsion to collect them and use them in the ways, in the ways that he did. I also feel this is why he felt compelled to explore literature on his own sex change. At this point in his life, his own inner feminine had become so completely repressed that an extreme version of it burst forth from his shadow. He had a diffuse sense of self due to being controlled by his mother and abandoned by his father, and it would make sense to me that his obsession with becoming a female through a skin suit would be a way for him to reintegrate this repressed feminine. Of himself obviously this is probably the most extreme way of doing this in his own twisted way I feel like Gein was reaching out in this attempt to reintegrate this feminine part of himself and I, I don't think I included that part in the um, narrative at the beginning but there were accounts that when he was reading like about the Nazi atrocities and human dissection that he was also very fascinated with um, what it was called sex reassignment surgery at the time. Right. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. So, in the end, it seems to me that Gein was really looking to recreate his mother, but in a symbolic sense. In reality, he was really searching for his own great mother archetype, the Holy Grail, so to speak. This can be an example 
of that quest that men must go on, archetypally, going horribly awry, obviously. Yeah. I'm not one who thinks he committed these crimes as a sexual sadist, so to speak, but I could see how his warped sense of femininity could contaminate his own sense of sexuality. There's no question about that. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue that this was the root cause of his actions, however. Over, oftentimes, men will use sex as a stand-in for the true integration of their own inner feminine. This is a temporary fix, however, because the answer is usually never outside of the self. So while much is written about Gein's mother, I, I really think we need to examine his relationship or lack thereof with his father, because that's how boys learn to relate and identify with the feminine, by watching their fathers, way more so than their mothers, right. I would argue. Yeah, because that's how they learn how to treat women, Yeah, right? Right, by watching how does the father treat the mother. This is why I would argue fathers or positive masculine role models are so important to young men. Gein was the perfect storm of two parents who failed him miserably when the desire to not be something led him down a path that was even darker. I could probably write a thesis on everything I've said today, but we'll leave it at that for now, I think. Um, like I mentioned last season, however, Gein's behaviors, to me at least, represent how he was suffering internally with this very twisted idea of his own identity and integrating what he was raised to believe was evil. This so-called evil was probably what he really needed in his life, namely the nurturing qualities of the great mother archetype and some solid example of how to relate to it as a young man. Instead, it went dark. In this sense, I think Gein was probably a very tortured person with a psyche on fire. David, your explanation of, you know, just your analysis of it is just so interesting. And it's not any way that I've ever heard this case talked about before. And it really does provide a different perspective, a different insight into it. But now I have a question. Sure. So my question is, do you think that it's possible that he had this mother complex and he was mentally ill. I, you know, anything's possible, certainly. I, I tend to, because of my own background, I tend to uh, not emphasize mental illness. And I, I again, the, the whole issue with, the, with schizophrenia does not sit well with me only because, like you had mentioned before, people who are genuinely mentally ill are much more likely to be victims of violent crimes than to actually be perpetrators of violent crimes. And they are, but there are cases. Definitely. Right? I mean, where people with mental illness do commit very violent crimes. But yeah, I wonder, like, if this was going on with him and then he didn't have a good grip on reality, like, maybe that's how we get this just horrific behavior that we hadn't really seen before. Right. Right. I would tend to look in, in other directions before. I know that the, the general, the, the conventional wisdom is we need to rule out mental illness first and foremost. You would, you would want to rule out any kind of organic causes right. for behavior first before you started looking into depth psychology or you know anything like that and and that's really where i'm going with this is in is in a much deeper sort of you know repressed motivations for behaviors rather than a one-off sort of simplistic explanation well he was schizophrenic so that's why he right did it. yeah and i and like you said i mean so many people have mental illness and they don't do something like this so there has to be more you know to the story more to the picture i'm definitely willing to make some room however for your delusional point because i remember you explaining that to me 
and me being fascinated with this idea that in all aspects of the, a person's life, they have it together. But then there's this one delusional part that when you get into it, it just goes haywire. Yeah. And, and I mean, the whole stuff with the mother, it's it's pretty out there. Right. I mean, it doesn't seem connected to reality to me. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, we could talk about this case for hours, I'm sure. And we probably will after this episode is over. Right. (laughs) But we're going to wrap things up. So if you guys are interested in reading more about Ed Gein, Jung's The Mother Complex, Serial Killer Typologies, or the FBI's Symposium on Serial Killers, we have all of that information available on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. You can also leave us comments there or you can send us an email from our homepage and you can find us on Facebook and now on Instagram. Yeah. We're finally getting with the program. Yeah. And you can find us on either of those uh, social media platforms at Psychology After Dark. And we've gotten so many emails and messages from our listeners, not to mention um, some really great reviews and recommendations. And David and I really can't thank you all enough. You know, when we started this podcast last year, we really had no idea where it would go or even if anyone would listen to it. So hearing from everyone, not just across the United States, but also from around the world has been awesome. It's awesome. Oh, we love connecting with you all. And we are so excited about season two. We have some really, we think, interesting topics planned. And we're doing some interviews of experts in the field. So that's going to be a little bit different. So make sure to subscribe if you haven't already so you never miss an episode. And uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Yeah, it's great to be back. Yeah, thanks for joining us. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskus, both provided by Gemendo.